and welcome to Ipsy Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Lu Smuen. Today, I'm interviewing Henrique Moraes, a diplomat with the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Brazil since 2004. He is also a PhD candidate at the Center for Global Governance Studies of Leuven University in Belgium. Today, we will talk about his paper, The Geoeconomic Challenge to International Economic Law, Lessons from the Regulation of Data in China. This paper was written for Henrique's doctoral research at Leuven University, and he is speaking within his personal capacity. Welcome. Thanks for having me, Luz. So let's begin by talking about why did you write this article and what inspired you to write this article? So... Um... So the article looks at uh, specifically at data regulation in China, and um, in the article I, I look specifically at the restrictions imposed by the Chinese legislation to uh, cross-border data flows. And uh, my argument there is that the um, the way the data regulation is designed in China uh, serves what I am calling a geoeconomic purpose. And I think we'll have time to, to uh, break down what that means specifically. Uh, but my point is that data regulation in China um, serves the perp- this geoeconomic purpose, which specifically is to, um, to retain in China uh, data, which is a valuable asset, among other things, um, to, uh, to contribute to China's uh, te- tech Catch up, and specifically uh, in the area of artificial intelligence. So that that is the the um, the case that I study in in the article. But the article is in fact part of a broader uh, project, um, which uh, aims to depict what what I think is a, a larger shift that is taking place and that is changing the logic underlying economic relations. Now, this project where um, we look at what is this, what are these uh, geoeconomic shifts to economic uh, relations, uh, it's it's a research that I started uh, a while ago with two colleagues uh, from Australia. One of them, Anthea Roberts, a professor at the Australian National University in Canberra, and the other uh, is Victor Ferguson, who is a PhD researcher at this same university. So for more or less a year, we've been um, doing this uh, research that aims basically at trying to uh, devise a framework to understand what is going on in um, the global and global economic relations, but specifically what impacts uh, these shifts uh, can generate over international economic law. So we have been for the past year. Uh, worked on trying to come up with this framework, which uh, is centered on the idea of geoeconomics. And this paper that we're discussing in the show today is sort of a spin-off from this research. It's a case study uh, for this broader research uh, in which I try to, um, um, uh, let's say, spell out, looking at the data regulation case in China, the impacts of uh, geoeconomics over international economic law more uh, more broadly. Um, so in I could say that the article, it looks at one aspect, the Chinese side or a Chinese example of a larger story. And I think we'll, we'll have time to discuss uh, during the show today 
the other aspects and what this larger story is. But that's why um, I wrote the article. The article then is, is a case study for a broader project, and the broader project is aimed at trying to make sense of what is going on in the global economic relations and how uh, these shifts uh, that, are, uh, that we are all witnessing, uh, how, th- how they impact international economic law going forward. So let's talk about international economic relations. You talk about a clash of economic models and uh, geoeconomics. Can you talk about those things? Sure. So the idea of a clash, a clash of economic models, I think it's central to understand the, the moment where we are. Um, I think today it's increasingly um, uh, undeniable that um, when you look at um, the way the uh, U.S. or let's say more broadly the Western economic model is uh, shaped it, there are many contradictions, let's say, when you compare it to the Chinese economic model. So <clears throat> there, there are differences. But of course, this is not the first time that um, uh, alternative uh, or, uh, let's say, new economic models emerge. The point that I think is new, and uh, this is a, an important question underlying this research to, to uh, single out what is new and what we are witnessing, is that China not only has um, its own economic model that, uh, of course, relies more on the presence of the state and operates by a different rationale, and I think we can, we can dig into that uh, in a while, but the difference is that not only China is different, but the scale uh, of China makes this um, contrast between its model and the, let's say, Western uh, or, or market-oriented uh, model uh, more uh, visible. And uh, the idea of, the, of an emerging clash between economic models, it, it owes to the fact that there seems to be a perception today, and uh, this seems to be clear uh, uh, in the U.S., for example, that China has not taken the... Um, the uh, the path that was uh, envisaged or desired for it to take, and that might have um, contributed to uh, in the uh, twenty years ago to um, to to allow it into institutions such as the WTO. So the moment where we are now, uh, you clearly see that, uh, and this is something that emerges from the debates in the U.S. Um, there is a perception that China will not go in the direction of market-oriented, a market-oriented model as was uh, desired or um, expected in the early 2000s. The thing is, China does not, um, um, uh, from from what we see, China does not uh, uh, or does not show any intention of changing the model that it uh, its economic model and what becomes increasingly clear is that China is doubling down and um, um, and it understands that the the economic model that it chose is a model that suits its particular circumstances and there's no need to change it and also because it has been a very successful model uh, for the Chinese society so not only you see a contradiction or 
a number of significant differences between the Chinese model and the, let's say, market-oriented model. But you see this um, um, entrenchment in the positions. And that's where the idea of a clash of economic models comes from. Uh, you see China um, uh, uh, confident that the model that they designed for themselves uh, fits uh, their needs. And actors such as the US, uh, the EU, and Japan uh, having a different view. But nobody is moving uh, in the direction of some sort of convergence or some sort of interoperability, let's say, uh, between the models. So you have a clash. Um, and that is central because it makes um, the, um, the, the, the possibility of having uh, agreed solutions at the international level more difficult because, um, inter and then I, I move to the second point, international economic law, as we know it, uh, for the past, let's say, 25 years, in particular with the rules of the World Trade Organization, um, these rules, they uh, build in, they have a lot of flexibilities, they have a lot of scape valves, but it builds in, and this is perhaps one of the central debates in international economic law today, but international economic law as we know it for the past 25 years, builds in a number of assumptions that... Um, 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 let's say, um, convey an idea that ec global economic relations um, are led primarily by market actors and not so much by the state. Although there are rules that, of course, uh, allow the, the state to take economic measures to pursue goals such as uh, environment protection, health protection, etc. Um, aside from that, uh, International economic law, compared to the situation where we have now, international economic law was premised on the notion that security and um, security concerns were would be an exception to waive the rules. Whereas what we start to witness uh, increasingly these days is that <clears throat> the notion of security or national security is expanding so as to encroach upon areas that uh, until a couple of years ago, were considered uh, to uh, to be covered, let's say, almost by almost exclusively by what we can call an economic mindset. So, the idea of geoeconomics uh, enters this uh, equation because geoeconomics is the term that we think captures best uh, some of the features of the shifts that we are witnessing, namely, an increased presence of the state uh, in uh, disciplining, but also being an active uh, player in economic relations, uh, a logic of economic relations that is not predominantly a market-oriented logic, but increasingly a strategic logic that does not make uh, often economic sense. And we can get uh, to some examples uh, if you want. But I think these uh, notions uh, are new uh, in the dimension and magnitude that they take these days. And uh, let's say if you take a step back and look at the broader picture, uh, one of the um, major, let's say, shifts in perception from 
those ideas that inspired uh, the international economic law as we have known for the 25 years, last 25 years. And now, one of the most significant shifts is the idea of what it means to be interdependent. So in the uh, late 90s, when or mid-90s or late 90s, when the WTO was... Um, was uh, starting, uh, this regime was starting to operate, clearly the inspiration was that the more economically interdependent, the better. Uh, that interdependence would generate efficiencies and all would gain. You fast forward to now, and the perception now is that, true, interdependence can generate efficiencies, but increasingly it also generates uh, security vulnerabilities. So we need to plug these gaps. And this change in the perception of what it means to be interdependent has a lot of implications, not only politically, but also uh, from an international economic law perspective. So basically, that's the the context in which we try to to, uh, to that we try to make sense. So I kind of want to go into the specifics here about uh, the logic of international economic law and particularly states' approaches to international economic uh, organizations like the WTO. For example, America's uh, national security tariffs on steel, their approach to the WTO appellate body, and China's approach to these international organizations, giving their contrasting economic model. Okay, so what you see um, at the WTO, um, I think there are... There are um, Developments of different uh, natures uh, of a different nature uh, taking place at the WTO. Uh, although, of course, you can always make the case that they are somehow interlinked. Uh, one of them is the U.S. Um, approach to uh, to the national security exception or to the security exception of the, of Article Twenty One of of the GATT, and this, of course, relates to the to the measures that the U.S. imposed on steel and aluminum. I think another development is what is happening with respect to the appellate body, which is something that predates the current U.S. administration, and I think has to do with uh, a different um, sort of frustrations that the U.S. have with respect to the way uh, the dispute settlement uh, mechanism at the WTO works. Um, of course, they all contribute to... Um, to the situation where we are now, uh, in which, well, there's a paralysis, uh, not only a paralysis in what is perhaps the most urgent uh, and, uh, challenge, which is the dispute settlement uh, pillar of the WTO, but also uh, the very capacity of the WTO to continue to, um, to serve as a forum for countries to agree on multilateral rules because precisely of the clash of models. So I think... These are two um, different challenges that are that we see at the WTO that affect directly the, the future of the WTO. Uh, but I think they they are uh, evidence of different uh, shifts. Uh, again, they might be interlinked. You, you can always make the case that somehow they are interlinked. And of course, the fact that the WTO faces challenges, these um, combined challenges, makes it hard to uh, or harder to uh, to uh, expect. Um, uh, ambitious multilateral solutions for um, for the for for challenges in in the global economy 
going forward. Um, but just just um, zooming in a bit at WTO and the idea of clash of models, as I uh, note in the article, um, the clash of models seems to be very the clash of economic models seems to be very present at the WTO and um, uh, both the U.S. Uh, and China are very outspoken about their positions, and and that gives us confidence to say that this is uh, this clash of models is something that is becoming entrenched, and um, because just by following the debates at the WTO, you can see that, um, and that generates a number of concerns about uh, what to expect uh, uh, from the WTO, but not only the WTO about the capacity uh, of countries uh, as a whole to agree multilateral rules for, for topics that are uh, crucial for the future of the global economy, such as uh, digital trade. And at this very moment at the WTO, <clears throat> there are negotiations ongoing on electronic commerce. Uh, and uh, this type of negotiation goes uh, the, to the heart of not only the clash of models, but to um, all the questions that uh, we are discussing today that have um, uh, a, a, let's say, geoeconomic uh, nature in the sense that they appeal to not only economic interests, but also to strategic interests of, uh, for example, who will lead in um, areas such as um, artificial intelligence. And the, the article is, we, I address the WTO negotiations on e-commerce uh, in the article, but it's part, even the this e-commerce negotiation at the WTO, it's part of this larger story. And it will, it will be impacted by uh, this larger story. So just going back to my, my initial point, I think um, the idea of trying to come up with a framework to make sense of what's happening is because um, the the clash of models that is crystallizing in these entrenched positions and different uh, logics of, um, of let's say, governing international uh, uh, economic relations, it, has, it is pervasive and it has implications for a number of, of uh, areas of international economic law. So let's talk about something you wrote about in your paper, uh, geoeconomic chain reactions. What is this, and how does it differ from past economic relations between states? Okay, that's a great question. Um, so, in the uh, in the article, I make the I make the point that we are witnessing a clash of models, and because this clash of models is becoming entrenched in the sense that uh, actors such as the U.S. and uh, the EU increasingly have realized that they. Um, that their ability to to shape China's behavior is very limited. Uh, they um, so they're confronted with their inability to shape China's behavior or to induce uh, in any way China to move in the direction that the U.S. and the EU desired. So the the U.S. and increasingly the EU are reacting to China in a way that resembles. Uh, at least now, um, the way China behaves. So the, I think at the core of what I am calling this clash of models is the accusation 
and I'm not passing judgment whether it's correct or not, or whether China is uh, is right or wrong. I'm just uh, stating a fact. There is the accusation that China does not behave like the other or has not behaved like the other actors, meaning that while the other actors were playing by, let's say, a market-oriented logic in which uh, market actors take the lead and the states are in the backseat in economic relations, China, on the other hand, plays by geoeconomic ways in the sense that in contrast to the to the U.S. and the EU, in China, it's the state that is uh, the driver's seat, uh, controlling um, economic relations and 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 much more present in shaping the way um, China not only structures its economy domestically, but increasingly how how China projects its economic presence globally. Um, now being more concrete. One of the accusations is that, um, so for example, just to be very, I mean, very uh, hypothetical example, but just to make it simple. I mean, if if you are a US company and uh, you, you like uh, Google, for example, and you think that there's an interesting technology somewhere else in a startup that you find interesting or that that, that can be developed or, um, you know, uh, streamlined by Google, Google goes and buy that company, right? They've done that with um, um, uh, Deep Learning, the company that um, the, that um, mastered the uh, uh, crucial um, keys in unlocking artificial intelligence. Uh, so they did it, but it was a market actor. Whereas in the case of China, one of the accusations is that even when you have uh, private Chinese private actors acquiring companies and sometimes technologies abroad, many of these transactions are, uh, they have some sort of uh, support from the state. And also, in many cases, it is the state uh, indirectly through state-owned enterprises that acquires uh, either technologies or what is called critical infrastructures, such as ports, for example. <clears throat> so the idea of China playing geoeconomically, uh, I think it's captured by this example, where you see the state both acting through a state-owned enterprise or by financing uh, a private actor to go and acquire something that is strategic. And that sometimes, and this is key also to understand the difference, sometimes economically does not make a lot of sense, either because it is a very long-term investment that uh, would be outside of the reach of private actors because, I mean, uh, market actors do not tend to operate in the long term that a state can, such as as the Chinese state. So, and sometimes uh, the price of the transaction might be overblown or um, to the point that you might make the case that from an economic perspective, the transaction does not make a lot of sense. Um, So because... um, there is this accusation that China has been playing by a different logic. So they play by a geoeconomic logic. Actors such as the US and again, the EU are starting to react also by deploying 
what we could call geoeconomic measures. So to take back again the example of these, let's say, subsidized um, acquisitions uh, of companies and their technologies, you start to see as a reaction to that, um, that both in the U.S. and also in the EU, but elsewhere in the world, uh, a number of legislations imposing or um, strengthening what is called investment screening uh, has been adopted. And by investment screening, basically, uh, you're basically talking about mechanisms whereby state and national authorities will uh, vet foreign investments to um, authorize or not a given transaction. Uh, so, for example, the news these days in the U.S. is that the, the U.S. authority that is responsible for investment screening, CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investments, uh, in the United States, uh, is apparently examining the uh, acquisition of TikTok, the app, um, uh, by a Chinese uh, a Chinese uh, uh, company, and that is because well, it's there are not many details because Sifia's um, uh, decisions and uh, investigations are are not public, so it's not really clear exactly what triggered this investigation, but. Given the excess of uh, TikTok to data, uh, you, um, a number of analysts are, are asking the question whether it is because um, by acquiring TikTok, a Chinese company uh, and perhaps the Chinese state might um, uh, get access to data of Americans that, and perhaps of other countries, but in this case of Americans, that might be considered a strategic asset that uh, might not be in the interest of the U.S. to let uh, fall in Chinese hand. So by this case of, let's say, by this example of subsidized takeovers by Chinese companies, both public or not, uh, and by a reaction taking the shape of investment screening mechanisms to prevent uh, some... Uh, uh, investment transactions in strategic assets. This is an example of what I am uh, calling this geoeconomic chain reaction, in the sense that actors that um, until now have been acting um, inspired by a market-oriented logic, they s start to change the way they operate, especially with respect to China to react also by deploying geoeconomic measures. So let's go on to what you were talking about earlier. Let's talk about data and data localization and why you chose to focus on it in this paper. Okay. Um, so I mentioned before that uh, the article, it, 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 it sheds light on one aspect of a larger story. The larger story is the story of the clash of models and how because China... Uh, is accused of uh, acting um, guided by a geoeconomic rationale instead of a market-oriented one. Other actors are reacting also by deploying geoeconomic measures, and this geoeconomic chain reaction risks um, reshaping the entire architecture and the logic of international economic law. This is the larger story. Now, to make the case of what kind of impacts this larger story might um, 
create for international economic law going forward. In this article, I look at one case, the case of how the Chinese regulate uh, data. Uh, I think uh, just as a footnote, uh, another example, but on the other side of this story, looking, for example, to the U.S., would be to examine uh, the investment screening legislation in the U.S. as a geoeconomic measure. Now, let's go to data. So data is, is key uh, and will become even more crucial in the future of, uh, of the economy, which is increasingly becoming digital. Uh, and data is a crucial input for the digital economy. Um, in many ways, data, uh, a lot of people will compare data to oil. So you will hear a lot that data is the new oil. You will also hear a lot of people saying that it's not really a good analogy. Uh, but what I think um, the message that um, um, this kind of analogy purports to, uh, to convey, I think, is that you're talking about a very important input for the digital economy. And that is true. Um, so, for example, when you look at China, um, China is a country of 1.4 billion people and something like 900 million people are... Uh, are, are uh, online, they have access to internet, and uh, in a way that is different from, let's say, the West in the sense that a number of activities are done uh, using the internet in China. Um, uh, and not only by internet, but mobile internet. So um, the point is that in China, the not only the volume, but the depth and breadth of that data that is generated by users is uh, more, let's say, granular. Uh, so if you are um, uh, a company that uh, you have an app in China, like uh, WeChat, for example, you have access to a number of transactions, behaviors of your users that normally uh, a Western companies such as Facebook and Google do not have. Um, because people do more things online and mobile in China. So they generate a data footprint. Now, why is data important? It's important for many things, but in the article I make the case, uh, and I'm not the first one, of course, to, to do that, uh, data is a key input for, for the development of artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence will be uh, uh, a central tool in a number of applications in the future economy, from driverless cars to the way you go to the supermarket, uh, um, some of the, uh, let's say, professions in, the, in, the, in medicine will be replaced by, by uh, not robots, but by artificial intelligence because uh, some of the, um, the um, uh, well, the expertise is routine, so you can, you can um, outsource it uh, or automate it. Uh, so it will be very important. But the way um, you, you, in order to refine artificial intelligence, uh, you need to expose, uh, and artificial intelligence is a set of technologies, it's not one technology, uh, but you need to expose it to a large amount of data so that it can be refined uh, and more precise. Um, and the point then is that if you have access to a lot of data, you have um, uh, an advantage in the sense that you can you have more, let's say, material to test your and to refine your artificial intelligence. The point I, I make in the article is that 
data regulation in China restricts uh, uh, the uh, outflow of data from China to the world. So basically, what this um, the regulation does is to retain within China the data from this roughly 900 million people, which is a lot of data, uh, so that China can have at its disposal for its domestic uh, research and development this huge volume of data. I mean, you take um, the number of people that are online in China, and it's more than the U.S. and the EU combined. So it's a lot of data being generated there. Of course, you can make the case, and this is again a footnote, that for some cases, the data generated in, in China, it's biased. So, for example, for facial recognition, uh, some people make the case that uh, there's a lot of data in China that's true, but it's biased in the sense that it is very good at recognizing Asian faces, but not African faces or Latin faces or Western faces. And that is a good point. But for a number of other applications to be sitting on data of 900 million people is a great advantage. So the point I make in the article is that um, restrictions of for to outflow of data from China, they serve a number of purposes. You can claim that reasonably that uh, uh, these restrictions, they serve uh, interests of security, uh, more directly related to surveillance, monitoring. That is, I'm not discussing that. But my point is that on top of all these uh, uh, objectives, the restrictions imposed in China are also an important tool to, to leverage China's uh, position as a possible leader in developing artificial intelligence. And that's what they are doing. They are, um, in, in many areas, they, are, they have advanced a lot. Uh, so that's the point I, I make in the article. You're talking about data as a crucial asset for the, um, the uh, development or advancement of artificial intelligence. And the point is to look at how <clears throat> regulations uh, in China um, catered to this uh, goal. And of course, by looking at that, in the article, I project a number of implications for global regulation on data. So why is it important that for increasing amounts of economic transactions, the United States might see data like the acquisition of TikTok as an issue of national security and the Chinese sees data as a, quote, strategic asset? Why is that important? Because, so, the, the reason why the U.S., um, um, the CFIUS, uh, began this investigation, it's not, uh, it's not uh, clear, but um, a number of people assume that it's because um, there is a concern that data from the users in the U.S. might be uh, transferred uh, to the Chinese state that can weaponize this kind of data. I will use, uh, I think, perhaps another another recent example, uh, also in the U.S., perhaps makes the case clearer, which is uh, a decision that has been taken by the U.S. authority, CFIUS, to uh, regarding another app, uh, Grindr, uh, uh, this uh, gay dating app. The um, so the decision took, uh, taken by in the U.S. was to order the, the a, a Chinese company that acquired the app to sell its um, its um, its its share in the in, and its stakes in the in the app uh, because it was understood that uh, access to data of this nature 
could be used against the interest, the, the security interests of the U.S. Uh, and that makes perfect sense, given the logic that we are in, right? Um, so that's why data is important, because in the context which we are in, um, data and control to data has a number of implications. In the article, I, I look at the, the implication of data as an input for artificial intelligence. In the case of Grindr, you're looking at um, data as an input that could be weaponized against the U.S. Uh, it's a different uh, application, let's say, uh, but it shows how uh, crucial access to data um, uh, is these days. But this question that you ask is also very uh, interesting because it it shows that one of the uh, features, let's say, one of the uh, interesting elements of the world we're living in is that um, is the idea of trust, and and I think this harks back to to what I mentioned before about uh, the 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 changing perception of interdependence. Uh, so in the past, the idea of in the recent past, interdependence was predominantly seen as a force for good because there was trust that um, nobody would weaponize or weaponize to a significant extent to its uh, gains. Um, uh, the fact that um, uh, economic relations were intense and that some countries uh, would, let's say, uh, depend more on certain markets um, because the uh, prevalent idea uh, was that overall everybody would uh, would gain so it's the idea of uh, uh, the tide that would uh, lift all the boats now this has changed today uh, and there clearly is an element of distrust especially with respect to china that changes the signal and uh, this has systemic implications to the point that for example going back to the investment screening mechanisms uh, a couple of years ago uh, most countries would welcome foreign investments with their open arms. And um, security concerns would be residual in the, uh, the cases where security concerns would lead to, uh, to, um, uh, to, um, to veto a transaction involving foreign investment was negligible. Now it's different because, because precisely of this element of distrust um, which is, uh, as I said before, it is crucial to understand uh, the direction things are, are taking and how international economic uh, law might uh, look like in the future. So let's talk about the internet governance models that the West and China use in relation to how the global internet should be structured. Uh, the contrast between the Western multi-stakeholder model versus the Chinese and others focus on uh, cyber sovereignty. How does that affect all of this? So this is um, it's another very good question. The internet, in a way, is um, um, the perception of the internet uh, today. It's it has suffered, I think more or less what I was um, um, referring to when I, when I was uh, talking about investments a while ago. So in the beginning, the, invest, the, the internet was understood as this space uh, 
uh, this apolitical space, uh, free from politics, borderless space, where everybody would have an equal voice. And you fast forward to now, and it's a different perception. Now, of course, you have you have um, different um, um, views on how the internet should be governed, and this is a very key question, especially uh, given the the um, the stage we're entering in in the global economy where it becomes increasingly digital and meaning that the infrastructure through which uh, most of the transactions will take place is the internet so the way uh, the internet governance is structured is is very important um, I um, I think this will, given the importance, the increasing importance of digital, um, uh, the di- digital economy for the future of the international economy, uh, these differences will probably lead uh, to um, the emergence of, at least in some areas, uh, some spheres of influence, a fragmentation of um, of the way we operate, and in some ways, the internet from an economic perspective, is fragmented. If you look, uh, uh, if you look to the fact that if you, if you see that, for example, uh, apps such as Twitter and Facebook, they are not allowed to operate in countries such as China. Uh, so you don't, you already see what some some uh, analysts call the splinter net, in the sense that the inter- you have different regimes within the internet, and I think that. Um, when you look at uh, um, areas such as data flows uh, and given the clash of models, which, for example, if you apply to the Internet, is it's exactly what is happening. Uh, it's a part of the economic, uh, the clash of economic models. Um, you might see the emergence of these spheres of influence that will perhaps uh, fragment international economic law uh, from something that is multilateral to different uh, Regimes centered around some some hubs, uh, or what um, uh, two uh, professors uh, Susan Aronson and Patrick Patrick LeBlanc call the data realms, uh, where you have uh, different regimes regulating data flows. But I have to say that um, in 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 a significant extent. Um, some of the things that we're seeing, but not only in China and Russia, they they have been uh, catalyzed by the Snowden revelations in the U.S., where I think that the U.S. lost some face, uh, and especially and all this narrative of multi-stakeholder when you would when when it was revealed that the, this uh, let's say what was thought to be uh, predominantly a market-driven uh, apolitical space was in fact being uh, weaponized or uh, deployed by the state for its, the United States for its uh, purposes. Um, so I think that that didn't help in the sense that <clears throat> um, then Europe started to, to uh, pursue its own path uh, and then you have the privacy concerns, uh, the GDPR, which is the EU legislation on Privacy protection uh, at the digital um, digital uh, environment, um, and of course, this also gives some uh, degree of confidence for actors such as China and Russia to pursue their own uh, 
uh, view of the internet. But you are right. It's it's um, it's um, the internet and how it is governed uh, is uh, it's an interesting. Uh, context to to watch because I think it will it will give us some elements to to understand how also international economic law will be shaped going forward. So big question. Okay. Uh, I ask everyone this: Why do the uh, underlying effects in your paper matter? Why does all of these developments matter? So I think they matter because. Um, it helps make sense of what is going on. Uh, if you're an international lawyer or if you're a market operator, uh, you will be confronted uh, and you have to understand the logic uh, behind what's going on because I think that uh, we are very likely to, to witness an increased uh, fragmentation of international economic law, as I mentioned in the example of of data, uh, I think it's very likely that we start to see emerging not multilateral rules on a number of areas, but um, rules that are set by some actors such as China, the U.S., and Europe. Uh, so, if you want to operate in China, you will have to abide by the Chinese uh, rules. In Europe, the same thing. For Europe and the U.S., the same thing. The question will be what will prevail in third markets. But uh, I think. Um, we should expect more fragmentation, and you will only expect more fragmentation if you if you make if you manage to see that what is going on is happening because of a different logic. There has been a change, or we are we start to see a change in the logic um, inspiring economic relations away from uh, from the logic that has prevailed until now, and more towards. A geoeconomic logic. So I'm not. I'm not claiming here, and uh, and my other colleagues with whom I did the research, we're not claiming that the old order is over and everything is geoeconomic now. So we're trying to take a picture of what is happening and try to make sense of it. So an increased fragmentation is uh, is uh, a very likely development in some key areas, and with that, you will start to see. Um, uh, an increase in um, domestic regulation, especially because a number of areas are, are being considered by key actors, the U.S., China, and Europe, uh, as national security, when until a while ago they were um, left to the uh, normal interplay of market forces. So areas that uh, would uh, perhaps be regulated multilaterally will increasingly be be regulated domestically, uh, and this, of course, generates a, a high degree of uh, unpredictability. If you are a market actor, you will have, for example, if you are structuring global value chains. Well, the very idea of global value chains is under threat in some sectors, uh, because whereas in the recent past, you as a corporation could. Uh, uh, simply design your supply chains across the globe according to cost effectiveness. Uh, now you have to also factor in political factors, and this has a number of implications for international law. And so I think the main takeaway from the the article and from this research on geoeconomics is to make the case that the logic the logic underlying uh, economic relations is changing. So this is an ongoing process. And we, we try to point to the, the direction where they're headed to. 
and we draw conclusions or possible conclusions as to what international economic law might look like going forward. All right. As a final question, what should the listeners of this podcast, uh, your fellow scholars and national policymakers in both the West and in the East take away from this paper? So I think we should take away that, uh, and many are um, uh, realizing that something is something different is happening. It's not um, uh, uh, it's not uh, uh, something that we've. We've seen before, in particular, given the scale of China, it's a different order of challenges, I think. Uh, there's a new logic that is uh, emerging and inspiring economic relations, and we should make sense of that. Um, first, to understand what is happening, but also, importantly, to, to try to shape so that we can preserve uh, a number of conquests, let's say, uh, from a legal perspective, that have been achieved in the past years in terms of uh, uh, having multilateral rules, uh, ensuring some degree of predictability for market actors. Uh, and I think it all begins by understanding um, the big picture, what is changing, and that's what we try to do. We don't, we don't try to zoom in uh, specific um, manifestations of the, the changing logic by themselves, but we try to portray the, the, the broader picture to give people a vocabulary to frame discussions. Well, thank you very much for coming on to the podcast to discuss your very interesting paper. It was my pleasure, Luz. Cooperative activities with their profit sharing to the city man of business. 
so long will the foundations of wealth be undermined and the comforts of enlightenment be impossible in the country community. The present conditions of business cannot be accepted as satisfactory. There are too many who do not prosper enough, and of the few who prosper greatly, there are certainly some whose prosperity does not mean well for the country. Rational progressives, no matter how radical, are well aware that nothing the government can do will make some men prosper. And we heartily approve the prosperity, no matter how great, of any man if it comes as an incident to rendering service to the community. But we wish to shape conditions so that a greater number of the small men in business, the decent, respectable, industrious and energetic men who conduct small businesses, who are retail traders, who run small stores and shops, shall be able to succeed. And so that the big man who is dishonest shall not be allowed to succeed at all. Our aim is to control business, not to strangle it. And above all, not to continue a policy of make-believe strangle toward big concerns that do evil, and constant menace toward both big and little concerns that do well. Our aim is to promote prosperity, and then to see that prosperity is passed around, that there is a proper division of prosperity. We wish to control big business so as to secure, among other things, good wages for the wage workers and reasonable prices for the consumers. We will not submit to the prosperity that is obtained by lowering the wages of working men and charging an excessive price to consumers, nor to that other kind of prosperity obtained by swindling investors or getting unfair advantages over business rivals. We propose to make it worthwhile for our businessmen to develop the most efficient business agencies. But we propose to make these business agencies do complete justice to our whole people. We are against crooked business, big or little. We are in favor of honest business, big or little. We propose to penalize conduct and not size.